0: Hello and welcome to A Light at the Crossroads, a podcast brought to you by Liminal 11, a mind, body and spirit publishing company with a focus on illustration and comic arts. Coming up, we'll be talking to Sean Michael Wilson, the writer of The Garden, all about his life and work in comics and putting that project together. But first, a little bit of general Liminal 11 news. Pre-orders are now open for the White Newman Tarot, which is a sacred animal tarot from Alba Balesta Gonzalez. And that's going to be available as a standard edition for £21.99, which will include the deck, an introductory booklet, and a sturdy slipcase. We're also doing a special limited edition, which will be £75, and includes the same deck and booklet as the standard edition, but also includes an additional Constellations Oracle deck, a tarot scarf and tarot bag, sheets of stickers, deluxe prints, Of the black and white Newman bonus cards, a signed and numbered authenticity card, and it all comes in a beautiful dark blue tin with metallic gold decor. If you go to liminal 11com you can get all the information on that release and indeed all our other products and offers. And now, let's talk to Sean. Hello, Sean. Thanks for joining us. Hello, thank you. And this is actually an international chat because you're in Japan right now. In Japan, yes. Yeah, whereabouts in Japan are you?
1: Uh, I'm in the south of Japan. And for Scottish people, I say it's like the Aberdeen, <laughs> the Aberdeen <laughs> of Japan. <laughs> and for English people, I say it's like the Bristol of Japan. <laughs> and, um, of course, it's a joke, but it's actually pretty much an accurate joke because what you can say is Aberdeen, like for people in London, they think Aberdeen's the moon. Right. I think probably ninety nine percent never been there in their life. But Aberdeen is a kind of dominant medium sized city of that area. You know, it's the biggest city in all the northeast of Scotland. And this this city I'm in, Kumamoto, is quite a large city and it's dominant for this area. But people in Tokyo think, Where's that? That's <laughs> that's the end of the earth. Uh, but it's a nice place. So basically it's in the south uh what Japanese people call west. Japan, but which is actually southwest Japan geographically. Right, right. It's near Nagasaki. Most people know Nagasaki.
0: So, as we can tell from your accent and your immediate uh, points of comparison, you are originally Scottish.
1: Aye, a, country, so I am a country sure. with a,
0: a fine history uh, or a fine place in the history of uh, comics, and still uh, a hotbed in a lot of ways. Yeah.
1: Yes, that's right. Well, various Scottish people have contributed various good things to comics. Of course, I'm I'm happy to be uh, in that Although, role of honour. Yeah. Um, the Scottish uh, what's it called? The Scottish Book List. I forgot what it's called. Now. Uh, they put me in uh, their list of ten Scottish graphic novel creators of all time, kind of thing. Right, and I was thinking that's great. But after that, I was thinking there's probably only 10, enemies. Anyway. <laughs> All I had to do was be alive to get into that group. <laughs> no, 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 I'm joking. There's there's a whole bunch of good Scottish creators, no, is, of course.
0: Uh, I think the Scottish wing of the Comics Hall of Fame will be uh, pretty crowded historically. So yep. It's, good. it's a good thing.
1: Grant Morrison is, of course, one of the biggest influences upon me. Right, right Um, yeah. More than Japanese manga, I would say, of Grant Morrison and Alan Moore and another Scot, Eddie Campbell. Yeah influenced me a lot since i was you know 12 13 reading comics in edinburgh
0: and i was going to ask like, how aware were you sort of like growing up in scotland reading comics aware of of scotland's sort of prominent place and and the scottish creators that were operating at the time and had gone before you
1: i remember this this is a connected point but i remember when my auntie's uncle auntie's husband came up from london and i thought he was american because of the accent, right? I mean, his accent was so alien to me as a, as a Scottish lad. I thought he was American. I thought he was like from Starsky and Hutch or something. Right? And so I, was, I wasn't really aware of much outside of my own small circle there growing up in Scotland. Um, and I certainly wasn't aware of Japanese manga. I didn't become aware of that until I was about 18 years old. But the stuff which I read as a kid was, of course, 2000 AD. And that was the biggest influence on me. And, um, of course, Alan Moore started doing some more intelligent uh, adult type stuff within that. And then, uh, shortly after that, Warrior Comic started an escape comic of Paul Gravat or Gravette. I always get his name pronounced wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so I started very quickly getting into the more mature and adult type stuff, like especially Warrior and Escape Comic. And via that, I got into Alan Moore's even more sophisticated stuff like uh, Viva Vendetta, maybe, most of all, and uh, and Eddie Campbell. And, of course, Eddie Campbell and I later worked together on From Hell. But um, for some reason, me and my pals uh, in Edinburgh then, we were into very mature stuff. Like, uh, I mean, we were reading Escape and World when we were 13 years old. this was very early, uh, but I'm not sure why. It was partly just luck that that kind of stuff was all coming out at that time. It was a good time to be a young comic book reader. But that stuff is what has influenced me the most, because that's what got really deeply into me, what I want to do when I grow up. And I've been foolish enough not to give up that dream.
0: <laughs> well, that is, uh I think it is a potent thing, isn't it, uh, comics? Like, it, if it does get hold of you, it really does uh, sink its, its hooks in quite deeply.
1: Yes, and, and I'm glad of it. I mean, I, I joke that it's a foolish thing, but it's not even that much of a joke, really. I am i mean, I'm a qualified college lecturer in psychology and sociology, and I certainly would have made a lot more money and a lot more kind of mainstream prestige if I continued doing that and being a college lecturer in those subjects. But I half foolishly and half... Uh, I'm half glad that I did. <laughs> uh, I decided uh, not to continue that as a full-time thing, but uh, continue with... Pursue my dream of uh, making comic books. But well, um, I'm glad to say I've been moderately successful at that, at least. Well, I'd, I'd say,
0: yeah, con- considerable success and uh, a prolific creator as well. W- would I be right Thank in thinking you. that your sort of start was sort of self-publishing and original fiction? That seems to be what I can gauge from, from doing a bit of research. <laughs> yeah,
1: well, um, I started, uh, what really started me off was I got a grant from the Arts Council when I was living in London. And uh I, I applied from that. Partly my what success I've had, and I, I would genuinely only call it moderate, to not to be um pretending uh to be modest, but I think that's an accurate description, is partly just from trying a lot. Gambaru as they say in Japanese, and partly a little bit of luck. And the luck was that for some strange reason whoever uh agreed that grant gave me much more than I was expecting and then I thought okay well now this is my chance to really publish something at a professional level so I had the money from that Arts Council grant and I really went for it and uh, I thought okay I'm going to throw myself into learning how to really publish a comic not just write it but also publish it and um, be involved in the design thing and the distribution and the printing so uh, I kind of jumped into it there and that was um that was 17 years ago, pretty much exactly now, because I think I got it in July, August at the grant, and then the book came out in December of that year. Um, I mean, it had already been finished, the actual art. i the published book came out in December, and it was it was in Diamond's previews. So I, I, I learned a whole bunch of stuff about how to do grant books, um how to publish them not just how to write them then and that's very useful because i've used a lot of that information still now
0: yeah i think a lot of creators would be well served by having a greater sort of understanding of how the industry works for you know for a number of reasons uh, just being canny enough to sort of be able to navigate dealing with publishers and distributors it can be a great advantage can't it how, how much do you think the sort of uh the fact that you were reading escape and and admiring the work of eddie campbell sort of influenced that because obviously there are two things where they're sort of things that are started by individuals or small groups you know not from nothing obviously but um you know uh, eddie campbell famously coined the phrase uh, small press to describe self-published comics, sort of borrowing it from uh, the poetry scene in, in the UK. So, you know, how aware were you of, of Eddie's work in terms of encouraging creators to take control of their own material?
1: I think that that stage, you know, I mean, that's kind of a stage in British society influenced me a lot. And also uh, it's in a way, it's a kind of punk and also a hippie kind of aesthetic of doing things for yourself. Obviously, Eddie Campbell and also Paul Gravatz and all those folk uh, from Fast Fiction, all that from the early eighties, they were doing it partly in a kind of do DIY punk aesthetic, and uh, of course Alan Moore's, was, Alan Moore's ideas are based on that, and also a kind of sixties hippie aesthetic of of doing things from a grassroots, even an anarchist perspective, and of course anarchism has also influenced me too, which I've partly got only to thank for that so i mean i think that era has influenced me a lot and as i say to be self-critical not always entirely in a positive way because um the thing about that kind of do-it-yourself diy thing is it's inherently small scale and also i'm heavily into 1960s music at that time in scotland especially in glasgow where i went to university there was a kind of uh 60s 80s indie type music thing going on with bands like primal scream and the soup dragons and um uh well those two became kind of big but most of the bands didn't they stayed small scale diy type level so that whole thing was very very influential on me um in a way which is largely positive but not entirely
0: yes yeah, so it's a hard sort of balance to find isn't it sort of having that independence and creative control but then being able to turn that into something that is commercially uh viable in a sort of capitalistic society
1: well that's the thing i mean i'm one thing i'm disappointed about with um as comic book folk is most comic book folk are just totally turn uh, put their head in the sand regards to how the main problem we have is capitalism and people get a bit annoyed when I start talking about it sometimes. But um, basically, uh, that's the thing which is holding us back way more than anything else, the economic system that we're in. Um, and the thing is, um, what I think the person who really helped me to think you've got to try and do something creative and artistic, but also have it be seen by the public and be successful, was Grant Morrison, because he maybe he went through something similar himself. And um, of course he got to a very high level of success in terms of fame and sales and money as well, of course. And um, when I was in my, uh, after I went to the master's in Edinburgh University, after that, I thought, I started to read Grant Morrison's ideas and his maybe a change in himself and thinking, well, it is possible to combine those two things, to do something really good artistically, which does sell well and brings you a certain amount of fame, etc. But on the other hand, uh, Alan Moore influenced me too. And I know Alan and Grant don't get on very <laughs> well in some ways. But um, one thing Alan Moore said was that fame is not a positive thing to aim for. Um, he said that right back when he was sick of it in the late 80s himself, that it's not a positive thing to aim for. It's not a healthy thing. And that influenced me a lot too. So to kind of ground me in thinking that the most important thing is always the art, the creativity. And that stuck with me.
0: Fantastic ideas for creators to keep in mind while they're working, isn't it? It's sort of like, I'd say to keep this balance going on. Don't ever get caught up in the idea of this is a key to financial success or fame. These things can come, and but also, you know, how important is that going to be uh, to you and it, it can be sort of poisonous can't it if you sort of end up chasing uh these things down and suddenly you're compromising yeah, sure. your work trying to find an audience and yeah it's it, it, i think as i say, it's interesting to sort of see particularly in comics i think because there's such sort of diversity in terms of material and approaches that you know there's so many valid ways to make a comic isn't there the the next sort of phase i think of in terms of your career is uh, more or less defined by working on adaptations in in the UK and and in the the Japanese market. How did you get involved with that?
1: Um, when I was uh, going to Bristol Comic Convention, and that was still the main thing in Britain. The classical comics were starting up, and they have. They, I mean, they're not continuing anymore in terms of publishing new work, but they still publish those books from that time, which was. Started in two thousand and seven, um, and Shane Cheebsley, i don't know how to—I don't know how to pronounce anyone's name. I don't pronounce your name. <laughs> Shane Shane, <laughs> Shane recommended me to your man that was the uh, publisher at the time, and and I and I always I always uh, have to be grateful to Shane because what Shane said was to the classical comics was Sean is a good writer, and when he says he'll do something, he does it. Right, And it, it seemed to me that out of those two parts, me being reliable was maybe the most important thing <laughs> for them. <laughs> that, I mean, of course, this is a joke, but it's also not a joke, because I think generally speaking, publishers, if they have a choice in someone who's good, but will do it three years late, <laughs> and someone who's all right, but will do it on time, they'll go for the person who's on time. Now, that's not, that's not necessarily a good thing, but I think a lot of them would be inclined towards that.
0: It, it's that old thing of like, uh, you can be cheap and good, but you don't have to be nice. And you can be nice and cheap, and you don't have to be good.
1: We <laughs> have to write this. I'm have to write this down. <laughs> yeah. and, and you All can right, be
0: yeah. uh, what would be left. And you can be cheap and nice, and you don't have to be quick. <laughs> but he said you can only get away with two of those things. <laughs> and it is uh, uh, i think it is that thing uh, you know when i worked at gosh we'd, we'd get sort of um a lot of sort of people starting off in comics coming into the shop and i sort of i ran a, a group called process Air that was designed to sort of bring together people who make comics and people who want to make comics and i always said to people one of the things when you speak to creators about uh, and publishers about sort of how you get work and how they find people to do work People sort of can have a, you can have a million ideas, but if you can put a, one finished thing in front of a publisher, and they can see that you have taken an idea, made it, and presented it, that's worth you know it's in gold, isn't it?
1: I think it's very very important, and any kind of schools that teach this kind of stuff, I think that's got to be uh, well the, those. What I said before, the the key situation that we we're, that we're operating in is within the economics of capitalism. That's a very important thing. The other thing is. Be reliable and do what you say you're going to do on time. Uh, I think there's funnily enough. There's not much emphasis on either of those two things actually. Yeah. yeah. But you reminded me of a joke about because um, I say I've been in '60s music and mod music, and a thing on the mod scene is they say that you can either be a dancer, a DJ, or a dresser, but you can't <laughs> be all three. <laughs> right. <laughs> I I tried to be all three, but still. <laughs> Yeah, that's what they say on the mod scene. <laughs> I mean, the mod music scene. Um, but no, I think it's it, it's a central message that, which, as I say, is not as well known as it should be. That you really need to be reliable, and that's what to a publishers place. That's what publishers like almost above quality, really, or it's, it's getting pretty close. Well, to I being think above a, quality, a, a
0: publisher will look at a finished piece and go, "This isn't brilliant. It's okay. It's solid." but we can sell the thing that's finished and solid. The brilliant thing that isn't finished, we can't do anything with. It's that thing, isn't it? Like we're Getting back to the, sort of, the idea of capitalism at the heart of things, there has to be a product. There has to be something saleable for it
1: to, to work for a publisher. Well, um I don't... Uh, I mean, I have problems with publishers sometimes and editors, and we have battles about how to do it, and it essentially comes down to the conflict between art and money. That's what it comes down to, basically. Um, and I don't really uh, strongly criticize them because the publishers have to make money. They are in a capitalist economy and they have to make profit. Uh, and that's unfortunate. That's one of the reasons I'm against capitalism is because the whole thing about profit distorts and destroys art and creative work in a whole bunch of mediums. But since they are in that capitalist system, they have to make profit, so I understand and the other thing, in more uh, specific terms, is they have deadlines to meet too. It's not; like, it's not like we're the only ones that have deadlines. They make an agreement with Random House distribution, or or, or whoever it is. You know, because you you worked in in Gosh Comics, right? They've got they've got deadlines and schedules to keep too. And if you're late to your schedule, the publisher is going to be late, and it's going to make them look bad to the distributor, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's a domino effect of the whole thing being, you know, buzzed up if you're not on time. Shane recommended me two classical comics, and I think more or less because they were impressed with the idea that I was going to be reliable, they gave me the contract to do a Christmas carol, and that was in 2007. And that, actually, that wasn't my first professional book because I'd already done Japanese one that um, was professional a, a year before, and we'd done a book on Iraq. which which was professional, I mean, in terms of being moderately well-paid two years before that. But that was pretty much me kind of stepping out into a wide-scale, normal-style comic distribution or well-distributed comics. So I ended up doing four comics for them. The books are good, very well-produced, high-quality books. I'm still proud of them.
0: And the thing is, in the same way as uh, sort of, like, Paperback editions of nineteenth century—they like, they just don't go out of print, do they? They just sort of like, stay. they stay. W- once they become relevant, they stay relevant, don't they?
1: So. Yes, um, and the Christmas Carol is my best-selling book so far, right? Yeah. And, it's, and, it always, and it's continued to sell. Obviously, every Christmas it sells, <laughs> it has a sales boost. But yeah, I mean, it's done well.
0: And then moving on to your work in 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 terms of sort of Japanese classics and adaptations, I think that's where. I first sort of saw your name pop up and sort of began to sort of recognise you in terms of of doing that work, working on sort of the adaptations of uh, The Demons, Sermon and uh, Mm Hagakuri And and, and how did you get involved in that?
1: Well, as I said, before the classical comics books, I did a Japanese theme book. And a friend of mine who's also called Sean, who uh, sadly died... Uh, of cancer uh, after that. He was working in the museum in Bournemouth, where funnily enough Tony Hancock grew up. You and I were mentioning Tony Hancock before. And he got a grant from the whatever the arts uh, museums department is uh, of the British government in this case. And uh, so he invited me to do a comic based on the real story of the people who started their museum, who we went to to Japan in 1885 from Bournemouth, and brought back a whole bunch of stuff and set up a room in there. I think it was maybe a, ho- a hotel there. No, not, uh, it was their house at the time. But they made it into a museum, and it's now a museum part of Bournemouth local government. And um, so uh, that was already a kind of adaptation of a serious, realistic thing from the past. And so in that case, it was really just a a coincidence that uh, my friend Sean said, will you do this? And and I did it with a Japanese artist who was uh, at that time well known for having done the manga of The Ring. I mean, the film Ring. And he did the manga version of that horror film. So we worked together. And because the thing was, once you do start doing one thing of that type, as you said, people think, well, that person can do that and those kind of things draw themselves to you if you're lucky like a mental magnet so then uh, when I went back to Japan I went to Kodansha in Tokyo I had a kind of uh, mad time where I was going around trying to introduce myself to all the publishers in in Tokyo and uh, most of it was not successful because most of that thing is not successful in any time in any art form but you've got to keep trying but we had uh, three successes in that time, and one of them was to get a contract with Kodansha. And Kodansha, as you know, are uh, they're one of the biggest publishers in the world. I think they're oh, top, huge, huge. certainly of the top ten, twenty yeah, publishers yeah, in the whole yeah, world, yeah. um, just because the amount of manga and other books which are sold in Japan. Um, and so we got a contract with the Kodansha's international department. Now. They, that that means they have all these Japanese classics which they've already published and therefore is already their copyright. And so myself and the editor, Barry, who later went on to become a writer himself and is, is working on his fifth novel now, I think. So we were looking through and thinking what interesting books on Japanese history, classics, most of them real stories by real people, which ones could we do manga versions of? And we focused on Hagakuri, which is actually from the prefecture up, from where I live prefecture means, you know, like county more or less, or state. And then we did um, <clears throat> the Book of Five Rings and the Demon Sermon, which you just mentioned. And then the 47 Rona, which is not a classic book, it's an actual event which happened. And so we'd already worked out three to do, the Shambhala, Publications in America uh, took up what we were doing. We'd already we'd only published two of them so far, but there was already another two in the pipeline, so to speak. So they took it up, and then so that means they published the book of byrings actually, which was already like half done. And then I ended up doing eight books with them, so eight with them, two with Kodansha, and the one I'd already done was already eleven different books on Japanese culture and history. Um, Well, it's been about four since then. Actually, I I think, as a matter of fact, the new one just arrived here today, which is with Tuttle, who are another big publisher. Manga, yōkai stories, and yōkai is basically ghosts or supernatural characters. Uh, So, it literally arrived with me today, from Tuttle, which is, um, along with Kodansha and Stone Bridge Press, maybe the three biggest publishers of English language editions about. Asia books about Asia, and uh, yeah, manga yokai stories, and the artist is Inko Ai Takita. Yes, she's done it. She's done an excellent job, and it looks lovely.
0: Yeah, and it, it just shows the sort of the power of of these stories in Japanese culture. Where I think yokai has become not, if not a glo- not a global phenomenon, but certainly known well enough outside Japan for there to be a market for it. 47 Ronin yes. has become, as you say, a historical event, but has taken almost sort of mythological, folklorish elements now in terms of how that story is told and retold. And obviously yes, the martial did. arts writings, you know, are timeless, aren't they?
1: Whose writings, sorry?
0: The, the the various martial arts writings, those sort of hammered ah, yes. of the samurai and various sort of theories on the philosophy and spirituality behind martial arts mm. are just timeless.
1: Well, the the Book of Five Rings is is actually my second best-selling book. And the the thing about that is I'm slightly surprised that it's so well-known So, to, to the extent that it will actually sell so well uh, because um, it doesn't seem to me to apply to business things very, very much, really. <laughs> There's an image that it did, I mean, in the 1980s. I, I don't really know how well it applies to business myself, but anyway, somehow it's got a reputation of being an interesting book. And in this case, that's lucky for us. But what matters to me is that the kind of people who really like that kind of thing. The people, because I'm I'm not an expert on this subject, actually, right? That sounds weird, having done... 15 I think today's book is 14 or 15, maybe, let's say 14. The 14th book on this kind of Japanese history, Japanese cultural martial arts, samurai. I'm not an expert on it, right? I, I take each individual subject and person and try to do my best with it. And the artist I work with tries to do their best on it. And and we research it, we try to get the details right, which means in the end, you get quite a lot of knowledge. But I'm still, I'm not an expert on this. There's people who I ask, for example, my, my uncle, he's not my real uncle, but I call him my uncle, Bill Wilson. He's William Scott Wilson. But again it's just a coincidence we're, we're not actually related now he's an expert on these things and on, and like imagine the skill of being able to translate a three or four hundred year old Japanese book into good English now that's an incredible skill
0: yeah absolutely
1: you know so I, I learned from these guys the kind of people that I work with who are experts on those kind of subjects they are the experts all I'm good at is making that adaptation of that particular thing, which I focus on one book at a time.
0: Well, that's, I think, the role of, of in, in terms of adaptation, the role of a writer is to be essentially a conduit, isn't it? Just sort of like you're carrying mm. through the ideas in as, as clear a manner as you can for the audience you yeah. have now. And that's, that's a uh, you know, obviously a, a, a massive skill in and of itself. So, you know, I wouldn't talk um, too Yes,
1: much. The, I mean, it's an interesting thing. I, I wrote um, a thing for Paul Gravatt. Grab at, grab, sorry, Paul, I stole the night for an for second. Uh, you know, he knows who he is. <laughs> I've, known, I've known him for years. and I've, yeah. I'm terrible with remembering people's names. I've got a <laughs> shockingly bad memory for names. But anyway, I wrote a thing for his website uh, quite a long time ago about how I do these adaptations. And I said in that that my basic point is I've got two poles on which everything um, kind of moves between... Accuracy and accessibility. So I try to keep it accurate to the original person or story or theme. Um, and often a problem with the publishers is they want to decrease the accuracy and increase the kind of hyperbolic excitement, and the sex and the violence and all this. And that's quite often the, a problem I have with publishers. I want to keep it accurate, which they sometimes see as boring right, or too subtle. But then, of course, the other pole is accessibility. You're you're making visual version, and so uh, the the inherent point about that is we presume as comic book creators that makes it more accessible. Um, that's a contentious point, which should take a whole other conversation to go into, whether graphic novels really are more accessible or not. But if we presume that they are, then um, that's the two poles that I'm working between accuracy to the original thing and accessibility of our version that we're making of it of course i've written a whole bunch of my own stories too like the garden obviously uh from Lemino. but if you compare the two adaptation is often the harder job and now that seems counterintuitive because you're taking a story which is already there or you're taking a historical thing which has already happened so it means you're not having to make up characters, you're not having to make up plot. Uh, but uh, sometimes if you make up yourself like the garden, it's actually considerably easier than adapting something because no one's there to say it's wrong. You know, you're just making it up out your own mind and the artist is making it up for it their own mind and the skill of their hand and the pen and the computer. And so... Once you get into it, once you come up with the story and the characters and the plot, etc., it can often write itself, as people say. Although (laughs) people say it writes itself, but I notice that if I take my hands off the keyboard, it doesn't write itself. (laughs) (laughs) But you can get to the point where something happens that it almost seems to be writing itself. But with an adaptation, because it is a real thing, often it's a slower, more methodical process where you have to check facts and especially when it if it's 3 or 4 hundred years ago you used to check very subtle things about how did they move uh, what was, what's the what did the clothes look like in fact you got to think about how the uh, costumes were folded sometimes because we we did a book of um, uh, bushido and what happened was the publisher for the cover image they reversed the image okay that we drew Therefore, the stance and the clause of the samurai was totally wrong. I mean, we've got to think about things like that. It's yeah, so very yeah, subtle things. Yeah. So often adaptation is actually a longer and harder job than coming up with a story completely out of your own brain. Well,
0: moving on to the garden then, I guess sort of going back to something we were talking about earlier in terms of your own knowledge and in-depth, you know, ideas that you're bringing to, to the project. Uh, I guess... My first question, uh, in terms of the garden, is: Do do you have a garden yourself? Is is gardening a part of your everyday life?
1: I was just thinking this today that you were going to ask me that, (laughs) and uh, I do. Yes, and um, it's become one of my main pleasures and my main tasks because it takes quite a long time to do it. Yeah, I've become very much into gardens, and when I write articles, because I've over the last like four or five years I've been writing newspaper articles as well as a sideline. And one of my main little campaigns now is, um, unfortunately, there's a very, very bad tendency in Japan of destroying gardens 90% or 100% when they're making a new building. Uh, I mean, an existing plot where there's an old building, and they knock down the old building, put up a new building, and don't bother to make a garden. Right? And it's a and it's very counterintuitive to the image of Japanese people loving nature etc but unfortunately there's a very wide scale uh tendency to not have gardens anymore in japan and um i mean, I've been trying to campaign against that tendency because obviously it 's not good for the environment and it's not good for the beauty and the preservation of japanese culture but uh my uh, of course i'm contributing to that personally by having a very messy garden myself <laughs> um, and what I'm often doing in fact is saving trees from gardens that are near me that are being destroyed and I'm going at night and nicking a tree because <laughs> I know it's going to be completely destroyed like yeah, the next day yeah. You know, literally destroyed and thrown in a bin and so I often try and save one if I can and then grow it myself so I've got about a dozen bushes here which I've saved from gardens that are being destroyed Uh, So, uh, yeah, I have a garden, and it's become very, very important to me, yes. So, in
0: in terms of the book, do you want to just give people uh, an overview in terms of uh, what the garden is about?
1: What happened was, um, it's one of those things, I say, that this idea of the story writing itself, that was an example of that. And not just the story, but the whole thing was really easy. (laughs) What happened was, a guy who I know is trying to get into graphic novels, because obviously we need... Sometimes we have a tendency of comic book people of thinking that we've already won the battle, but we still need lots more adult readers, a lot more. And so I often try to get people to say, "Would well, please try and try this graphic novel. And so someone said to me, okay, I'll try. Are there any graphic novels on gardening? Which that person was interested in. It was a person in, in Britain. I know. And I said, uh, oh, I can't think of any I was racking my brains to think of any comic books or graphic novels that are on gardening and maybe there is some but I couldn't think of any so I said to him as a joke no I can't think of any maybe I'll have to write one myself (laughs) and from that joke is why we're having this conversation (laughs) and it's funny how these things happen really after having said that joke I said to myself well hold on why not something I'm interested in. There isn't an existing comic book in it, as on it, as far as I can see. Yeah, why not? And then, again, by coincidence, I just got to know Darren literally a couple of weeks before that. Darren from Limino, Limino 11. And so I said to him, this is the idea. And I came up with the idea very quickly, very easily. I'm thinking gardening is a form of kind of meditation and mindfulness and as a way to recover from sickness and from from being isolated from your work lockdown, as we say now, mm-hmm. right? The the character was in a lockdown situation, but of course I came up with this about two and a half years ago. So it's totally a coincidence about the coronavirus situation now. And anyway, so I described it to Darren and he was into it straight away. So him and Mike thought about it and very quickly they said, yeah, we want to do this. So, I mean, within... Uh, It was about three weeks after the guy had asked me that (laughs) that I already had a contract to do it. (laughs) I mean, this is super quick. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Unbelievably quick because as you know, sometimes these books can take years and various books of mine have taken years to to get started. But this one was like less than a month. Uh, And then also by coincidence, Fumi Obata, the artist, I knew that he'd studied in Glasgow and I was thinking there's a Japanese guy in Scotland and I'm a Scottish guy in Japan, <laughs> and um, I wanted to kind of get to know him more. And by coincidence, he'd come over to Japan uh, just two or three months before that, I think, a short time anyway, and we'd met. We had a went out for a ramen meal together, and um, we got on well, and we said, yeah, we should try and do something together sometime. And so again, it, it, it's just one of those things where everything fell into place. Right? The publisher wanted to do it straight away. I just met Fumiel shortly before that, who was the ideal artist to do it. Because as anyone can see from the book, he's done a wonderful job. And it, and it's a perfect match to my script and my story. And the story happened very easily, very simply. Uh, and yeah, I think it's, um, I think it's a, a wonderful book myself. I'm not shy of saying when I like my own books. <laughs> I think it's a very sophisticated book, but also very realistic and kind of relaxed because the character's talk to each other in kind of realistic ways it's not a kind of over serious meditation type book it's a it's a mixture between a serious development within the characters joanna's uh, situation from meditation in the garden and relaxed and realistic and joking
0: yeah i think that's one of the strengths of it is the fact that it's so naturalistic so as you say yeah. for people come into it who don't necessarily have um, you know, a big background in in terms of reading comics Obviously Fumio's artwork is, you know, wonderful And just flows across the place so beautifully It's lovely and, and, and then, you know, your story and your characters Are, you know, relatable There's nothing, you know You're dealing with something like meditation Which obviously is, you know, an ephemeral idea But the, the whole situation is so grounded That there's a, an anchor point for readers to come into and take the ideas in a very, as I say, natural way, rather than having to sort of struggle with the ideas and have to to wrestle with them. So, yeah, I think it's a tremendous book. And as I say, you know, horrible to to sort of think of it in in that way, but, you know, incredibly timely in that, you know, it's about making the most of the space around you and learning to appreciate things that are close to you, which, you know, has become so important for people over the last couple of months.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, that, again, it's one of those things that just seems to... Be rather magical and th- everything's moving in its direction, but of course, obviously, no one had thought about this when I started this I mean, the, the coronavirus when I started this because two and a half years ago, so it was completely a coincidence. And that we'd already scheduled it to come out at this time, right? So, no one can accuse us of kind of profiting on this because you know they can look back that we we scheduled it, scheduled it, um, you know, last autumn to come out at this time, and um, yeah, it's a funny thing because it's like exactly like a coronavirus type book that the person is on lockdown in sickness mode and what are they going to do to try and find a sense of calm and purpose and meaning in their life and they turn to the garden which i, I guess millions of people have been doing or more than millions <laughs> tens of millions yeah
0: i think also just going back to you talking about the, the, the flow of the project as a whole i think again it's important to sort of look at the the work that you've put in as a creator that does enable that so you know you're talking to people about ideas for comics and even the most casual conversations sort of like plant a seed in your mind and then you you learn about the existence of Fumio and get the opportunity to meet him you take the opportunity to meet him even without having a project you know directly in mind but just making that contact and then as, as we said earlier as well, for Liminal 11, you talked about the speed of getting the project underway. But for them, I'd imagine if the idea comes from you, who has a backlist of 25, 30 books as you approach them, it's a different prospect to Joe Blogs coming off the street going, I've got an idea for a book about gardening. They're like, What have you done? They're like, Nothing, but I've got an idea. Whereas they're like, Sean will deliver essentially is it I mean it's just, it's just, it, just, it just it just it just sort of greases all the wheels doesn't it in terms of uh just simplifying ironing out any concerns you might have or researching the background of the creator to make sure they're reliable and what not you know that's that's almost inbuilt with with you being on board as as a creator and Fumio as well you know uh Fumio's done course, other yeah. other beautiful work so getting the two of you together for, from a liminal perspective I think is like here's a dream team that are only going to produce something good. So it's, everyone's a winner, essentially.
1: The good thing about the book on this case is they uh, let us get on with doing it pretty much our own way and only made a few, to be exact, they made three small suggestions <laughs> in the whole book, right? right? Now, I can... I better not get too much into this. <laughs> i get in trouble. But there's, there's publishers who I work with who interfere way too much right. and don't let us get on with it. And that's that's a problem which I've been having recently. And I think that it it doesn't, uh, again, this is a contentious issue, and editors have a role, and publishers, since they are paying for it within capitalism, they have a right to say some things. But basically, I think that, uh, as you say, if creators have proven themselves able to do a good job on time, the best thing is just to let them get on with it. Uh, most of the case, most of the time, and anyway, well, I mean it can go wrong if you let them get on with it. <laughs> but um, uh, in this case, in the case of the garden, I think Fumi and I have have done a good job, and I'm very happy with it. And Lemon have, have printed it very well because, of course, it's a beautiful hardcover book with lovely paper, very cr- crisp, clear printing, um, which shows uh, the uh, very soft, flowing art style of. Fumio very well and so the whole book is really beautiful i think it's possibly it's my most beautiful book so far as i say, i'm not shying i'm not shy of praising <laughs> my own
0: work when i like no, but it of, of course when, when you say that you know you're also paying tribute to fumio's artwork well, Fumio, from you, from and, and, Liminos, and, and also works. the designer exactly. mike yeah, and yeah, the printer yeah. too i mean it's not just me it's yeah. everyone yeah. it's a team effort isn't it and like you know As you say, uh, it's uh, led to uh, something quite wonderful in this case, so congratulations.
1: I think so, yeah. And I I notice also that um, it's probably had the best reviews of any book of mine so far.
0: Yeah,
1: no, definitely. uh, uh, Well, well, I suppose maybe. The Book Book of Five Rings had a review from the Shogun's House, which is, again, as I say, people who really know about samurai and martial arts things, because these are like practitioners of decades and they uh, said they said we didn't think someone could pull this off wow. but this is pretty damn close and they, and they said some very very impressive things which I was quite moved about thinking well these are the, these are the people who know this stuff yeah, absolutely. Yeah. and they were impressed by what we've done with these samurai martial art books right but I mean in terms of like um, the normal comic book readers the gardeners had some really wonderful uh, comments I've been quite moved by it. Several people have said they've been moved to tears by reading it. And I think I've, that's never happened to me before, I think, with any of my books. Well, I know um, Jared Myland,
0: who I spoke to on a previous episode of the show, uh, he does like a running thing. He runs OK Comics and Leeds, and he does like a running thing. Of,
1: oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, sure, yeah sure. He'll, he'll do
0: the occasional sort of social media posts, and it's like, here's what I'm enjoying at the moment. Here's my books of the year so far. And he must have done half a dozen, a dozen photographs of various displays and stacks of things that he loved. And like he's uh, head over heels with the garden, which is lovely.
1: Well, it's really nice. I suppose, in a way, this could be counterproductive. Or, we're uh, saying so many good things about it. Some people get annoyed. <laughs> Big head. Well, in Japan, they say, they say, Mise birakas, right, which means that you're praising yourself. Or jibu, ita, which means I say so myself <laughs> and of course it's very very against Japanese of course, culture, yeah. people in general that don't <laughs> praise themselves but, yeah, yeah. but the garden is a good book that's basically <laughs> um,
0: and just looking to uh, the future and sort of current projects, one of the things I noticed you posted about recently was uh, a book that you had written about the Tokyo Olympics is obviously been uh, yeah. postponed because of the coronavirus so the sort of uh, the extra emphasis that's given to the garden it's almost been, been taken around this project but obviously you know the Olympics have been postponed rather than cancelled I just wondered uh, mm. what that book entails and, and how you got involved with that project it looks fascinating
1: well the, the funny thing about that I mean this is kind of like philosophical reflection but that story is set last week Because the Olympics were finished on, I think, Saturday or Friday last week. And so we wrote it as a realistic story, which was going to happen about six months after the book was published, but a realistic story of things that were really going to happen. And then, of course, they didn't happen. So what happens? So when you read the book, it's been written as a realistic story and has now been magically transformed into a fantasy story because you're reading these characters walking around a Tokyo which never came to be and sitting looking at the start of a game or games which never happened so it's a weird kind of thing that's been transformed into a fantasy story and then of course if the Olympics happens again or if it happens next uh, summer this fantasy story will become a realistic story again (laughs) but by um, by Good fortune, we didn't write 2020 on the cover, and in fact, it only appears in the book once or two times in small ways. Right, right. It, totally unplanned. Yeah, yeah. But afterwards, we were looking, I think, on oh, this book is buggered now, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then we we read something, thinking, oh, it doesn't really mention 2020 almost anywhere. <laughs> so we're thinking, oh, it's okay. <laughs> the thing is, that is also by Kodansha, but by a different department of Kodansha, Kodansha Editorial, as I told you that they closed down the department I was working with, which was Kodansha International. Anyway, so I was lucky enough to get a contract with a different department of Kodansha, lucky enough and also pushed for it. And so I've done three books with this different department of Kodansha. And um, I think the basic thing about that was them thinking, again, what will sell. And then they knew that the Olympics was coming up. So we said, well, let's do a, let's do a book about the Olympics, basically because it will sell well. That's, again, that's publishers' ways of thinking, and I, I don't really blame them for that, despite my criticism of the, the economic system in general. So that's the central reason we did that book, because they thought it would it will sell well, eh, because the event is really going to happen. But, of course, coronavirus had other plans.
0: Sean, thanks so much for talking
1: to us. Thank you very much, Stephen.
0: <laughs>
1: who did not write a
0: Tony Hancock story. <laughs> we won't even explain that. We'll just leave that hanging there and let people, yeah? <laughs> people <laughs> live, live on in wonder. <laughs> it's like, he's listing things he hasn't done. Is that the only thing he hasn't done, written a Tony Hancock story? <laughs> <laughs> Um, yes, uh, I'm sure we'll talk again at some point uh, in the future. Thank you, Stephen. I enjoyed it. Thanks again to Sean for talking to us and thank you for listening. See you next month. This show is a Holdfast Network production. Go to holdfastnetwork.com for other programmes you may enjoy.